1: You're listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Tremendous Leadership, Leaders on Leadership podcast, where we pull back the curtain on leadership and talk to leaders of all ages and stages about what it takes to pay the price of leadership. And today, I am so excited to introduce you to my new guest, John Filoni. John, welcome.
0: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: (laughs) I'm excited. Let me tell you a little bit about John. John is the best-selling author of several books, The Fall of the House of Hutton, The Covenant Secret, and recently The Tollbooth. John addresses the hubris of misguided leadership and explores inspired leadership and the seeking and developing of individual and organizational purpose. Whether on Wall Street or on a college campus, John uses his lifelong entrepreneurial spirit to act resourcefully and effectively and build extraordinary teams. He considers himself blessed with a spectacular team as the founder and CEO of Stock Squirrel, where he intends on executing a vision that will make a dent in the universe Mm -hmm. and expand the social consciousness of society. Woo, John, that is a beautiful (laughs) vision, which we're going to talk about. Thank you again for being here.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Wonderful. And a lot of the listeners are like, Tracy, how do you know all these cool people, these cool, tremendous people? And I always like to give a shout out to who made the introduction. And that was Tony Mikowski. Those of you that have published with me, Tony and I have been co-publishing for many, many years, probably 12 or 13 years. And Tony has published some of John's books and connected me with him. So thank you, Tony, for this tremendous introduction. And without further ado, John, we're going to get right into the topic of leadership. So my father gave a speech many, many years ago. It was probably one of the top speeches he gave called the price of leadership. And in it, he talks about the four things that you as a leader are going to have to be paying to really be truly doing leadership and not just a leader in name only. The first of those, John, is loneliness. And we've heard the term, lonely is the head that wears the crowd, it's lonely at the top. But can you talk to us about a time in your career or life when you experienced the loneliness of leadership and maybe some words of wisdom in case one of our listeners is going through it to help them get to the other side of it?
0: I'll give you an example. when. I was at EF Hutton and I was chairman of Boone Pickens United Shareholders Association. And now EF Hutton was being taken over and it was a bad deal for shareholders. And I brought a class action lawsuit to block the merger and I sued the company, which led to the best selling book, The Fall of the House of Hutton. But what was interesting in Everyone agreed with me on the wrong, that the hubris, the greed, and everything that management and the board of directors was doing. And I decided to take action on that. And everybody is all for you and all that. But when push comes to shove, you're standing out there alone. And that is a leader. And what you learn from that, I think, is you're asked the question, would you do that again? Because there's all kinds of obstacles and attacks on being a leader of something because you're out front alone. And the answer is if you're truthful and you were passionate in the action you took, the answer is yes. But I always give the answer as well. I say I would be a little bit more elegant because you do learn as you go that there are always ways to be more elegant in your leadership. And that comes with experience.
1: Yeah, I love that. Wow. You really brought something up there. Loneliness If you're on the front line, like you said, and being courageous, there's a lot of people that like to stand behind you, but typically there's that tip of the spear and as leader, you got to prepared for it. But I also love that you reflect back and look at a way that you could get better. And elegance is certainly, I'm sure that was a scary time. I did crisis leadership in my PhD and I studied a failed merger. And it Mm -hmm. was wild. And I'm sure, you know, in the heat of the moment, but I love that you reflected back and said you could be a little bit more elegant because there are times where are we creating our own loneliness? We know there's going to be times of loneliness, but are there ways that I could have done it in a way that kind of narrowed the gap a little bit? Right. Yes. Yes. Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you, John. The next is weariness. And my father would always joke and say, Tracy, kind of joke, but not joking. It's going to be tiring as a leader because there's going to be some people that do way more than what you ask of them. And then there's going to be a lot that don't. So you're constantly having to pick up loads and shift and balance different things. How do you combat weariness, John? Because our team is only as strong as we are.
0: Yeah. And it always has to do with the team and with people. And there are a few things. First of all, as a leader, I come up with a vision, which we'll talk about vision. And a vision is a destination that I see. I see clearly. And my job is to get a bus and point the bus in the direction of the vision. But my true job is to get all the right people and sit them in the right seats on the bus. And that's going to change and you're going to have to adjust. And there's nothing more difficult than letting people go. That's always hard. But one of the things that addresses weariness and loneliness is to be a servant leader. You lead from the bottom up rather than from the top down. And I'll give examples of that. When I was a broker at EF Hutton and in management, I hired more million dollar producers than anyone. And when I was given, they would let me go around the region talking to other managers and how you did that. And my answer was very simple, not profound at all, is I would take, one of my brokers to breakfast or lunch every morning or every afternoon, I'd take a broker and I'd ask them what they were working on. And then I'd ask them what their goals were, what they needed to accomplish their goals. And then I went back to the office and got them what they needed. Mm. And profoundly simple, but what typical management is, they would say, oh, you'll get this, this, and this when you do this, this, and this, where my approach was, I'll give you this to get you there. Now, you're not always going to be right. You've got to trust people like adults. And that's always uh, difficult because of the rules of organizations are always based upon the lowest common denominator of human behavior rather than the best. So the weariness comes from fighting all of those external things, but it's your people and the vision that do away with the loneliness and the weariness. weariness.
1: I love that. You said that rules are always based on the lowest common denominator. Man, that's profound. We had uh, Ken Blanchard on a leadership call last night teaching a course, and he kind of said the same thing. A lot of prevailing wisdom is you grade people. Oh, you're a C or your D. He's like, no, no, no. Everybody gets an A. There's a book, the WD-40 mm-hmm. guy wrote it, and he Ken was talking about it. Assume everybody... Everybody has a great pearl in them and you need to coach them up to an A. And I love that you sit there.
0: Absolutely.
1: But again, you said it. This is making the assumption that they are self-directed. They understand their values and they can articulate to you what their goals are because there are some people. And I always I love the one quoted. It's like you always want to delegate to the lieutenants, providing you have good lieutenants. And yeah. that is assumption, especially in financial services sector, because you kind of die out pretty quick if you don't really yeah. know or have a hunger for it. But I really love that you said it because that's what it's burdensome as a leader, but what makes us weary, we're focusing on our efforts on the wrong thing.
0: Correct. Allow people to feel. I I trust my people totally. I mean, even take as many sick days you want, as many vacations. When you trust people and treat them like adults, they tend to behave that way. Yes. As opposed to giving all of these rules and structures is have faith in that human being, back them, and you're going to be disappointed at times, no doubt, but less so than you think.
1: Well, I love that. And you also said the goals. Everybody thinks, oh, it's just letting people servant leadership isn't letting everybody come up every day and decide what they want to do. You still have those goals out there and we are still part of a collective. So we're going to be on this sheet of music together. But let me know how you see the goals and the resources to get there. That's a beautiful definition of Mm -hmm. leadership, John. Thank you. Okay. Loneliness, weariness. The next thing he talked about was abandonment. And typically abandonment is kind of a jagged word, fear of abandonment, abandoning pets. It kind of has a negative connotation. But in my father's case, he referred to it as a focusing effect. And I can remember him saying to me, Tracy on any given day, I spend more time on becoming a failure than I do on a success. And what he meant was we need to stop spending time on what we like and want to do in favor of what we ought and need to do. So his sense of abandonment was really getting rid of the non-value-added things, thoughts, meetings, whatever, so we can become very singularly focused. Mm -hmm. So with you, how do you maintain that pinpoint, that singularity?
0: And again, it always has to do with people, right? I mean, you get visions and you have Plans and strategies and so forth. And, it, but it's always carried out through people. So, one of the ways that I'll deal with whether it be the loneliness, weariness, or abandonment, and even on the vision is I learned something as a manager in a brokerage firm years ago. I was System manager Eddie of Hutton. And I was probably 26 years old. And I was walking by this broker's office and he was a big broker and he called me in. And I always knew all of the politics. And it was a big office, 300, 400 people. And I always knew the politics of everything. So the guy, Chuck, he was a friend, calls me in and he starts giving me hell about this decision that was made by management, which he knew wasn't my decision, but he's given me hell about it. And I learned something at 26, which was really, really powerful. Before I was going to engage him, he was Italian, I'm Italian, and he's accusing me of all this management stuff that I had nothing to do with. And he's attacking, which was out of character. I decided to ask a salesmanship 101 question, which is so like simply absurd, but I decided to ask it. Because it was a weird situation. And before I was going to engage him with my temper, because he was running off, I said, Chuck, I said, is there anything else beside that that's bothering you? He sunk back in his chair inside and he said, well, my grandfather died last night. And I yelled at him. I said, and you're going to give me all the hell on all this stuff. But here's what I learned. I learned, which adds to loneliness and weariness and abandonment, that 90% of the time as managers and leaders, we're spending time and effort on issues that aren't even the issue. So it really behooves us to deal with that weariness, abandonment, loneliness, and the leadership function to really make sure that you're dealing with the issue, to ask the questions, to reveal the truth before you spend any time and effort yourself or the organization on solving a problem that is not the problem.
1: Well, it's kind of the old research thing. Correlation is not causation. You know what I'm Hmm. saying? Like that was correlated, but that wasn't the root cause analysis of what was going on. And I love that simply absurd questions. (laughs)
0: <laughs> to reveal the truth. Well, and- you know, it's the, I think it was uh, Drucker that said the difference between efficiency and effectiveness is when you're efficiently putting a ladder up against the wall, it's solid, it's state, you're ready to paint, you go up there, but it's the wrong wall putting it against the right wall is effectiveness. So we could be efficient at doing the wrong things too. So we got to make sure that we're effective as well as efficient and we're dealing with the problems. And these are all things that leaders learn over the years just by experience. Hopefully they learn them.
1: (laughs) Right. But it's a skill set. I mean, I hope our listeners are out there. I mean, that's a great question to really ask somebody when somebody, and I love that you said it was out of character for him. So rather than fight or flight, you're like, Hmm. emotional hmm. regulation. I'm bringing this energy in and I'm just going to calm it, diffuse it and just say what's going on. So, wow, I love that. Thank you. Thank you, John. Okay. Loneliness, awareness, abandonment. Last is vision. And sometimes we think, well, I'm not Nostradamus or Elon Musk or Oprah, or some of this big visionary. But my dad would always tell me, Tracy, vision is I love what you said. It's a destination. It's where you want to go. My dad would say it's just seeing something and then devising a plan to get there. So there mm-hmm. was kind of this attraction, but then this action aspect. So, John, what is vision to you? you and how do you keep honing it?
0: Well, what's interesting is when you do follow a vision and especially in today's world where you get feedback immediately on so many different levels, you have to be adjusting to it and you have to pivot. I I mean, you look at vision as a, what's the temperature regulator that you have on your wall for the temperature in the room? A thermostat. thermostat, It's a thermostat, right? So you're going to get feedback continuously in adjusting and you may have to change. What's really interesting. And a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in the technology space, will tell you that the vision of the company that they initially pointed to is nothing the way it was ultimately executed. As a matter of fact, there's a reason why in Silicon Valley, the venture capital firms back the horses, The I mean, the jockeys more than the horses. They look for a management team and will back a management team more so than the idea of the company, because they know They know that initial idea may not be even close to what the final product is once you touch the marketplace, once you touch customers. And they know that the good management teams know how to pivot when they're faced with the information of the marketplace and are able to adjust and bring the vision home, which may be entirely different than it initially was.
1: Sean, that is brilliant. I mean, I've been around a long time, but that is back the management team, not the company. I always tell people, even when Jesus, the Holy Spirit came down on him and told him, this is my beloved son. He's the one. Until you have the team. Think yeah.
0: about this. In his team of 12, 20% were no good. You had a doubter, a deceiver. So even Jesus had a management issue. <laughs> yes. yes, he <laughs> did. Adjust. I love it.
1: Well, that's fascinating. And I love that you talked about vision. You adjust it. You fine tune it. And even me. So I'm about to celebrate 15 years of being back and I'm looking at and I'm like where it was. And dad always says you'll be the same person five years from now, except for two things, the people you meet and the books you read. So kind of every five years, I'm like, okay, where are we now? And you morph into something different. You keep the DNA, but you're growing into something different. And so I love that you talked about that because we need to adjust our vision and say, hey, these aspects of it, we may have outgrown or now. We're looking at this, or I got the calling that this is done, and I'm going on to the next one.
0: Now, yeah, who said it best was uh, Napoleon, who was truly the greatest general. He won more battles than the next three combined of numbers of battles, and he was the greatest military strategist ever and would plan and plan and plan. But he, as he said, he goes, Every plan, every battle plan isn't worth the tinker's dam once you face the enemy. So it prepares you on how to respond, but it changes its dynamic really quickly. And it's the same for a business, for a vision, for a company, et cetera. Once you face the enemy or the marketplace, you've got to continuously adjust. And if you've done your homework, you know what your arsenal is in the adjustment. And if you have the right team, you have the skill set in order to adjust as well.
1: Right. Well, they now talk about, remember, it was all IQ in the old school and then it was EQ. The last 20 years have been about the softer, the hardest leadership. But now they're talking about AQ, your adaptive (laughs) capacity. And so Mm -hmm. now it's like it doesn't matter matter how emotive, people oriented or smart you are. Boy, you got to be quick in today's lightning. You really do. You have to be adaptive and regenerative because on any given days, the best laid plans are
0: gone. Well, just thinking a marketing plan, it used to be years ago and when I was young, it would take six months or, or a year before you knew what you were doing was effective or not. Now you get immediate feedback. So you've got to have plans and you've got to be ready and you've got to adjust. you got to pivot. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I love that because for people out there, they're like, oh, I know, but I thought I was going to do this. And I'm like, but that's okay. You still keep that overarching theme, but how your flight plan can vary at any given thing. And I think that's great for the listeners to know, hold on loosely- <laughs>
0: Don't let go. <laughs> well, the beauty of growing up too. think about when I was young, you had fewer choices. The world was different. And now yeah. youth have so, so many choices. And I'm always even with my children is try everything because learning is not just following your passion, but it's also learning the stuff you don't like. It's process of elimination as well. And that will hone you on your path as well. Not just succeeding, but the failures in learning that you're not good at something or dislike it will help direct you as well.
1: Well, and that's so important because most people, they're not sure exactly what they want. And we talk about vision and I would say one out of 20 people really know at a young age, mm, this is what I'm going to do. And the rest of us, we kind of ebb and flow through life, but I love that. Okay, I'm not sure what I really put on earth to do, but I'm still going to try things and, and, you know, and it's then funny. I'm going to see. Right.
0: Yeah. I would consult with certain people and you'd have a 40-year-old lawyer sitting across from me and he's coming and sitting across from me looking for guidance and counseling and he doesn't want to be a lawyer anymore, but he doesn't want to make the change because of all of these reasons, societal, family, blah, 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 blah. And I asked him a very simple question. I said, rather than sitting across from me, who is older than you and more experienced, if you were sitting across from an 18-year-old, would you take their advice on which direction you should go professionally? He says, no, that's absolutely stupid. I said, well, that's the age that you decided to be a lawyer. I said, so it's okay to change your mind.
1: (laughs) Wow. It is okay to change your mind, but you're right. Letting go of the comforts or it's tough, but that's the entrepreneur's journey. I mean, I was worked for big bureaucracies and fortune 100 companies and making that transition, that's a shift and it's a whole different kind of problems, but I prefer the entrepreneurial problems (laughs) way better than the bureaucratic problems. That's just how I am. That's not everybody, Mm -hmm. but that's how I am. Mm -hmm. Me too. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Most of our listeners are too. That's why they're listening, or someday will be. Yeah. So, okay, John. So we talked about loneliness, weariness, abandonment, and vision. I want to talk more about leadership. Can we talk about the fall of the House of Hutton? Because you talked about the dangers of hubris and misguided leadership. So can you unpack that for us? What you found? Yeah, very simply,
0: (laughs) which I'll have a, I'll do another book down the road and I call it the Custer Principle, George Armstrong Custer. See, here's what happens is when we have results of something, people try to discipline themselves to make different actions and then decisions. But if you go back to beliefs, because beliefs producer and thought, Thoughts produce certain decisions, decisions are certain actions and then certain results. Most people, if they don't get the result they want, they go back to disciplining themselves on actions and so forth. You gotta go back to beliefs. And and what the custer principle is, and I experienced this at EF Hutt, and then you experience it with a lot of hubris of powerful people. At the time George Armstrong Custer, who graduated last in his class at West Point, was in the newspaper all the time. He was a great general. And he needed a huge victory because he wanted to run for president. Even though he had some personal flaws, he had the press and everything. So when he was faced with, he only had 140 men. He was faced with the largest congregation of Indians in the history of the country, 10,000 Indians. And he had a colonel that was coming with a lot of troops, but they wouldn't be there for a couple of days. George Armstrong Custer decided, I better attack these 10,000 before they find a way to escape. And he attacked them with 140 men. Now, what I call the Custer Principle is if you have a fixed viewpoint of something of a certain belief, you will create all kinds of nonsense in order to support that belief. So from this book, I create what I call a SAT scan and know how a CAT scan is a computer aided tomography, right? Where you see Mm -hmm. 360 degrees of something. Mm -hmm. Well, with us, our decision-making is going to be limited by the things that we believe and our viewpoints. So with the SAT scan, I call it a spiritually-aided tomography, where you take the viewpoints and the opinions of someone anywhere from Jesus Christ to Hitler and if you look and explore all of those personalities, then you look at the circumstance in front of you. And now your, your opportunities for, and choices expand dramatically instead of limiting ourselves. So when you look at the fall of the house of Hutton or whoever it may be, when you see such massive falls, it's typically because that hubris was created by having limited viewpoints, limited beliefs, and the actions just followed from those beliefs and viewpoints.
1: How do we as leaders avoid
0: that? Well, we talk about diversity. I think the most important thing about diversity is having diversity of thought. Mm-hmm. viewpoints. Agreed. So when you're sitting across across from someone and you're addressing a circumstance, uh, to truly explore a diverse group of people who have different experience, different life, different education, all of a sudden you're getting more information and you're expanding your choices. And Ayn Rand said that there are only two reasons when we do something stupid. It's number one, either we don't have enough information, right? Or number two, the information that we have is wrong and we're making some decisions on that. So by having a good group of people around you, a diverse viewpoint, diverse backgrounds, diverse education, you get to see and explore more things that are truthful. You get people to say, well, you're holding that premise and it's just not true all this stuff is important. And I think that's the best thing a leader could do in order to make good decisions.
1: Well, they always say, if everybody's thinking alike, somebody's not thinking. But yet I tell people, you can look radically different, but if you're all in the echo chamber, you're not diverse. Exactly. You have to be, like you said, it's your thought process. So yes, you want to look for the other, but it has to emanate, you set up here, thoughts, emotions, well, like you said, beliefs and values, Thoughts, yeah. emotions, behaviors. Okay. That's what you got to get back to. So I love that. And yeah, that thoughts, emotions, point.
0: decisions, and behavior because yes. decisions are key.
1: Absolutely. Decisions and yep. behavior. John, talk to us about your latest book that just came out, The Toll Booth.
0: Yeah. The Toll Booth is interesting in that it's a business parable where this younger guy is having, at a crossroad of his, of his life, he can really expand in this company. And he sees in the company newsletter where the chairman, who is a great founder of this great multinational conglomerate, says that we should follow our heart, follow our passion, and so forth. So he decides to see if he can get an audience with the CEO and the founder of this company, because he wants to ask him a question. The question that he raises is a good one. You said in your newsletter that we should follow our heart. And I feel that if I follow my heart, I will be leaving this company And it's like, whoa, that's a profound statement to go to the CEO of a company. And so the CEO, who is a very, very wise man, takes him on a journey of exploring all that. And he gives him a notebook where this person is going through his own exploration in a toll booth at night. And a toll booth is is a metaphor for us going inside, for us being alone alone and not looking to the external world for answers, not looking for gurus, not looking for religion or wisdom, but to go inside where all the answers are. And it's this journey that this young man goes through and comes to a conclusion at the end.
1: I love it. Well, I cannot wait. Tony sent me copies. I can't wait to read that. I love business parables too. All right, John, what's the best way for people to reach out to you or get your books?
0: Yeah. I mean, the books are on Amazon or you can give them Anthony's, uh, the the publishers. You can go right to the publisher. Amazon, I have a website that I'll be building out more, johnfalone.com. You can reach me on LinkedIn and I love hearing about people. You can put a comment on Amazon or review of the book or what have you and I'll respond.
1: I love it. Well, John, thank you. Each of those four topics and then even after, you really said something that really just Gave me another little paradigm shift. So you are everything and more than what Tony told you. And I know our listeners have just really enjoyed listening to your thoughts and your wisdom and will definitely connect with you. So thank you so much for being my guest today.
0: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.
1: You're welcome. And to our listeners out there, we couldn't do it without you. And thank you for being a part of our tremendous tribe. If you like what you heard today, please do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button and share it with another leader looking to develop their leadership skills. And if you give us the honor of a five-star review, we would be tremendously grateful. So you be sure and you connect with John, you get his book. And remember, life is all about the people you meet and the books you read. Have a tremendous rest of your day. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Find out more about Dr. Jones at www.tremendousleadership.com. If you've been ignited by something you heard in this episode, let us know by leaving a review for Tremendous Leadership wherever you listen to podcasts or by sending us a message through www.tremendousleadership.com.